And today we're reading from Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're in a sermon series, finishing up a sermon series called Jesus Loves You More Than the Rules. And while you're turning there, I was watching this show called Hotel Impossible, and these struggling hotel owners, for whatever reason, mostly financially, they realize their hotel's not going to make it, and they realize that under their management, things are just not good enough, and that they need help. They're not going to make it. And so they call this expert whose job is to come in and turn around hotels, and he's turned around all these different hotels and hotel chains. And the expert comes, and he walks through the hotel with a person, and he points out every single thing that's wrong with the hotel that's going to be need to be changed to be made right. So so the hotel can make it. And the people, they know that there's something wrong. They have this general impression that things are not going well. But as he goes through the hotel and he starts pointing out the specifics, you can see the resistance of the struggling hotel owner because they run the hotel that way because deep down they really like it that way. That's how they want a hotel to be run. And they don't want to change. And he goes through and he says, you know, your foyer needs to be changed. It needs to be brightening up. You need to have the ceilings raised. You need to have a place where people come in that they feel from the moment they've entered the building that they've made the right choice. He says they, they want food that's available. They want new things. They want old furniture. They don't want old chairs. They want new chairs. They want to... And he goes through and he points out all of the things and the people resist. And this guy has learned to be incredibly clear and con incredibly confrontational because he's dealt with, dealt with the pride of people for so long that he knows that even people who are failing, even people who are struggling, even people who know they're not going to make it still are so prideful that they can't see what they're doing wrong. And so he goes to the hotel and he just is so clear, so confrontational. And when they push back, he looks him right in the eye and says, I've turned around dozens of hotels to be successful. You can't run this one. And yet you're telling me that I'm the one who's wrong. And I'm watching this show and I'm like, this is exactly what Jesus does to us. Except he's not walking through a hotel. He looks into our hearts and he sees our hearts. And we have this general impression that we're sinful, that we're sinners, that I'm not perfect in some sort of way. But as we read the word of God, and especially in Matthew chapter 5, as we go through verse by verse and we read what godly love looks like, you can just see the resistance. Because deep down, we like it that way. Well, I'm faithful to my spouse. He's fairly faithful. And Jesus, you say that, if I've even looked at a woman who's not my spouse, that's sin. Jesus, you say that I, I'm fairly loving to my people and my family, but you say if I've even, even insulted my brother in my heart that I'm guilty of the anger that leads to the, your judgment on murder. And you see that, and deep down... We don't want to change. You can't really mean what you're saying here, Jesus, right? You can't really say that. I've got to be so loving that I can't even have a moment of unfaithfulness as I look at someone. Or I've got to be so loving that I can't even have a moment of, of anger where I cease to have goodwill. As we read through Matthew chapter 5, we see Jesus revealing our sin and that under our management, it's going to be only a matter of time before we've got to pay where things come due. And the Lord looks at the people who he's created and he's so clear and he's so confrontational and he does it because he loves us and he wants to save us. And as we read through the Bible, it's hard to have the humility to realize how ungodly we are 
And you might read through this passage and you might feel today that Jesus is being too hard, that godliness is too much of a challenge, and that clearly Jesus must have said something wrong because there's no way that anybody could be doing a better job than you could be doing. That's how these struggling hotel owners feel as they manage their hotel into the ground. That's how every one of us feels as we sit here and cause pain to the people in our lives and contribute to the problems in our families and our workplaces and our churches. But yet we sit there and think, no one could be doing a better job than me in my situation. And you read what godly love is. It might be hard to have the humility to say how far from godly love we are, but get over yourself. God is better than you. He's so unimaginably better than you. And I thank the Lord because you might think you're fantastic, but the people around you are also so thankful that God is better than you. Because if God was the same as you, then the people would be just as miserable in this world as those who are around you. Thank God we've got a God who's so much better. If God was the same, then this is as good as we could hope for. And you might be blind to your sin, but the people around you are not blind to it. They see it. And thank God we've got a God who's so much better than you. Thank God we've got a God who's so much better than us. Thank God godly love is so far above us. Because that's how much more we have to look forward to in Jesus. And so here we're going to begin reading again in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus is going to follow the same pattern as he has time and time again. He does it in verse 21, verse 27, verse 31, 33, 38, 43. He's going to heard, he say, you've heard it said that this is what it means to be godly. But I'm going to reveal to you, actually, it's way harder than you thought. You thought the God of the Old Testament was strict with his 613 commands. That was just the starting point. Godly love is actually far beyond that. And so here Jesus begins speaking to us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, and he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you... And so Jesus begins taking conventional wisdom about what justice was and how people should respond when they have been wronged. And he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And Jesus begins in that those first few verses, saying things which we have struggled to understand. Is he really being serious? Is he being metaphorical? Is he, is he being serious? With it? Are we supposed to take this literally? And he begins talking about the Old Testament, the conventional wisdom which said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus is quoting Exodus chapter 21 here. And in the Old Testament, God lays down many, many laws about how to respond when someone harms another person, how to bring justice. And it's way more complicated than just that simple phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. There's a lot of nuance, a lot of complexity to actual justice. And so this is not just a blanket statement. If this was a blanket statement on how to respond in every situation, then the Old Testament would have been a lot shorter. All right? In every situation, just do unto them as they've done unto you. Boom, done. That made it easy. And so what 
God is giving here is just a general principle for justice in the Old Testament that justice needs to be there, but it needs to be not excessively lenient or excessively harsh. It brings punishment to the evildoer as a deterrent for evil. It is good to do so. It is godly to do so. People are much less likely to harm someone else if they know that same thing is coming back to them. And so it's godly to have that attitude towards people, to act like they have the choice, to treat them like they have the choice, because they do. We're not just products of our environment who are slaves to our past, who need reconditioning and re-education. What we need is punishment to deter us from the evil that we cause to others. Because we have a choice. No matter what our past is, no matter what our education has been, if we know that if we do this thing, somebody's going to do it right back to us, that's going to stop us from doing most things. And so it's godly to do this. It's godly to set up a justice system like this for the nation. And Moses is leading a nation. As God tells him this, it's about how to lead the nation of Israel. And Moses is leading this slave people into becoming a nation as they've come out of slavery from the strongest nation in the world, Egypt. And in Egypt, this rule actually existed in Egypt. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth did not start with God's revelation to Moses. What God is doing is he's essentially quoting and referring back to the Egyptian law code from whence they came. And God is giving them something that they're familiar with, that they can relate to, that they can begin to start as a foundation for their justice. And it's not to be excessively lenient or excessively harsh. It's to be fair. You can't take two eyes for an eye. If someone kills one of your animals or steals one of your animals, which would be akin to crashing or stealing your car, you can't take their house in return. And also, we can't do nothing because people are so evil and sinful if they know that nothing is going to come of it. They'll just keep doing it. And so the Lord gives Moses and his people a a baseline, a foundation for justice, and it makes sense. This is good godly wisdom. I love this rule. When people wrong me, I want justice. I have a strong passion for justice when I am hurt. When I offend others, I've got a strong passion for grace and mercy. But this is a rule, when I think about it, I love it. I want people to suffer when they've hurt me. I want them to give back to me what they've taken, because I love my stuff. And I have multiple friends of mine who, you know, deep down in their hearts, I can tell that, that this rules for them, right? <laughs> this rules for them because, boy, those people, if it wasn't for this rule, they'd be out to get you. And I know it because I play board games with them. <laughs> and I've got a friend of mine who I love dearly. We've been friends for a long time. We play this board game Risk. If you've never played the board game Risk, you got to play it. It's this world map. And you can play with like up to five players and you each get a different color army and you split up the map and I'm in Asia and you're in, in uh, Russia and you're in Africa and you're in America and you put your armies down and you slowly try to build your armies without overextending yourself and you attack to take over new lands without overextending yourself so you don't leave yourself vulnerable and you slowly build an attack and try to overcome everyone in a game of global domination so you've got it all. And I've got this friend who basically just, from the beginning of the game, we all know it. Like, if you attack our friend Gary, he's going to, he's just advertising. If you come at me, if you attack me, and it's something that everybody does throughout the game, you attack me once, I'm going to go all out until I'm dead trying to get you back. And it's true. 
First person to attack Gary, this is why all of our games go. First person to attack Gary, Gary goes nuts, attacks that person until Gary's overextended himself and he's lost the game and that person's been attacked until later and they're both out. And the man cares nothing about justice and equal justice. I'm telling you, watch out, you know, if it wasn't for the laws, who knows? And so this is a law for people to not be excessively lenient, but also to not be excessively harsh because people have this desire in their heart. If you harm me, I'm going to get you back twice as bad. And many people live this way in real life. You don't need to look to a board game. When I was in college, we, uh, for some reason, uh, they had this restaurant on campus. For some reason, they had Tom and Jerry playing on the TV every time we went in there at, you know, 11.30. And uh, I hadn't watched Tom and Jerry since I was a kid. Some of you might have never watched Tom and Jerry. I sent out a, uh, both sent out in the email this week, a link to a Tom and Jerry video, and it's on our Facebook page as well. If you haven't seen it, you can go on there and, and look at what I'm talking about. But it's this cartoon cat and this cartoon mouse that just constantly escalates. They never de-escalate. They're just constantly escalating until just all-out war. And it always starts off that the cat tried to eat the cartoon mouse. And so then the cartoon mouse, while the cat's mouth is open, pours boiling water down the cat's throat. And then the cat gets really ticked. So he tries to crush the mouse. And then the mouse stabs him in the eye. And then the cat tries to drop a brick on the mouse. And then the mouse blows the cat up. And pretty soon it's just all out. And one of the things that struck me is, is who thought that this was ever appropriate for children? But the kids don't have to watch in their cartoon. They can just watch their parents do it. This is how people are. And you look at the passage that the Lord is giving us, and we haven't even lived up to the Old Testament saying of the law. He just gave us a baseline. He's talking about baselines. You thought it was loving to not murder. I had to tell you, because otherwise you'd be doing it. You thought it was, you know, unloving to commit adultery, but I had to just start there. That's not the... the the be-all, end-all for your marriage? That's not the, the most that God hopes for your marriage is to love each other just enough so that you're not actively, physically cheating on it. There's way more. And you haven't even lived up to the Old Testament rule. Here you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We haven't even lived up to that. How many people in your family, or maybe you, you expect all of your faults to be overlooked, but if anyone else in the family does anything, you're going to call them out on it. They're going to call you out on it. They want all of their faults to overlook, but once somebody does something to them, immediately they want to be treated with justice, and they're going to call you out. And if you point out, well, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, why are you, we, we do this for you, and we, we accommodate, and then if you do that, then they're going to all go out and escalate it some more. You wouldn't believe what they said. I came and they hurt me, and I asked them to stop, and you wouldn't believe what they said. How many people, they can't keep the house clean and in order? So then the spouse says, well, I'm not going to fix anything anymore. And so the other one says, well, I'm not going to make food anymore. And so the other one says, well, I'm not going to be around anymore. And it just goes back and forth and back and forth, continuing to one-up it to the next level. And Jesus is going to reveal that godly love is, is so much more than how we treat people. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil. When people are evil to you, he can't mean that. Doesn't he know how important I am? 
Doesn't he know how important my things are to me? At some point, we have to realize that it's not just the sins that we're good at avoiding that Jesus wants us to avoid. It's not just the passages that we're good at following that Jesus wants us to take literally. It's the ones that we're not following. Everybody reads the word. It's the one that they struggle with, the one that they don't want to follow. It's suddenly, well, Jesus is being hyperbolic here. He's exaggerating. He's trying to get a point across. So he's using metaphor. Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him, the other also. And when I look at the Bible, I like that Old Testament law. I like when the foundation is laid and God says, you know, I'm just going to try to get you people who have no idea who I am and what I'm like. I'm just going to try to get you on the first base. I'm just going to try to get you into the game and thinking about it. Don't murder. Be faithful to your spouse with your body. Honor your commitment to your spouse. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. Well, I like that one because you know what I really like is fairness. But Jesus is going to reveal that godly love is actually sacrifice. And when Jesus, he can't, he can't be speaking. Seriously, he wants us to sacrifice so that when someone harms us, like we don't turn back and, and seek justice, but we're willing to suffer more? That sounds like abuse. That's, that just sounds horrible. That's godly love? To be willing to sacrifice for that for someone else? Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic... Let him have your cloak as well. I've got so much clothes. I, can't, I don't want my clothes. I've got so much. I can't even get to the ones I want. I go to my closet. I'm like, oh, that shirt's terrible. That shirt's terrible. That shirt. Where's the ones that I wear in here? Because I've got so many clothes. My brother-in-law tried to give me a bunch of really nice new clothes. I'm like, I don't want them. I don't need them. Throw them out. Get them out of my house because I've got so much junk. This is not the way that it was back in the day. I mean, think about how much we love our stuff and just about every person in America is so hoarding and so greedy that our houses are just packed with stuff from floor to ceiling so you can barely get by. This is not the way it was from almost all of human history. Right? The people that Jesus is talking to, they're not you. They don't have so much junk that they can't get by in their garage. They have nothing. When Jesus says, if someone takes your your tunic. I mean, you might have two. You might have a backup. Not always. Jesus is not telling you to sacrifice your stuff. He's telling people who are thousands of times poorer than you. And so if he's going to tell people who are that poor to be like this, how much more is he going to tell you to be like that? And how Hard it is for so many of us to sacrifice some of our stuff. How hard it is for us to sacrifice some of our income. What does Jesus call for us to give to the church? What? You can't mean that. What does call for... If we gave to the church like Jesus commanded us to give to the church, we would have no need for the government to have to steal it from our paychecks to then try to give it to the poor. 
If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Why? I love my stuff. You don't mean it. Jesus says, do not resist. You thought it was good enough to seek justice that was equal to the justice inflicted on you, but I say to be truly loving, to be truly godly. Godly love doesn't look like fairness. Godly love looks like sacrifice. And he gives these three examples. The first is not to defend ourselves against personal insults. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to the left also. If you're going to be godly, you've got to lay down your dignity. can't mean that literally. Verse 40, a tunic and a cloak, it's not a small deal. That's a legal dispute. That's a big deal. If someone takes almost all of your clothes, you know what? Give them the rest. To be truly godly, don't seek justice. When they take your stuff, give them the rest of it. And the last one is really tough. We don't quite understand it as well. But in the original context, people know what he's talking about. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. The Roman soldiers who oppressed the Jewish people would enlist one of the Jewish people to carry their pack for them as they marched through their country, oppressing them, dominating them, taking their stuff, taking their taxes, giving them little in return. And this is what Jesus is saying. If any one of these soldiers come and these people who are pressing in your family, if they want you to carry their pack for a mile, tell them you'll do it for two. I mean, I've had conversations with people in the congregation because like, I look at the world today and I'm sort of like, you know, you look at what's happening in the cities as they burn, you're kind of like, am I supposed to be the one who rallies the troops to get the guns? Right? And you look at it, and you're like, because you can't let this go on. And I think there is a place for, for defending those who are innocent, those who are vulnerable, standing up and saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop this person from, def- from hurting somebody else. But as Jesus points out how you are to respond to people with you, that Roman soldier who you'd like to get the guns, instead respond differently. As an individual, when, he, when they come to us, we're supposed to respond differently. And, and if they want us to carry their stuff for a mile, we're supposed to have this type of humility. And love, see, we don't even think this is what love is. This can't be love. That doesn't seem love. We're supposed to have this kind of love for other people that we're going to carry it for them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Dave preached an amazing message. I bring it up because it was just life-changing for me. I've you know, never heard that before. I always used to hate giving to the poor because I grew up poor. I know how undeserving they are. And you have people begging. There's hiring signs all over. And I hate doing that. I think, Lord, you can't have meant that. I heard Dave give this message. Don't, don't refuse from the one who begs. God brings people into our life who are completely undeserving to remind us how you are before God. Next time I pull over and next time I'm driving and there's somebody on the side of the road, I'm going to give them my money this time because it reminds me how I am towards God. That's life-changing stuff. This is the kind of love that we're supposed to be showing people. 
To really love like God loves, you've got to be willing to give up your dignity, give up your stuff, and even help those who are actively hurting you. And for some of us, this might sound as ridiculous as a few verses earlier where it says that if we're lusting, we've got to cut off a hand or cut off an eye because it's keeping us from heaven. Like, this is serious. It seems hyperbolic, but it's not. If there was no Jesus come to save us, it would make perfect sense that when we're tempted to sin, to cut it off, whatever it is. Because heaven's that valuable. Eternity is only logical. It's not hyperbolic, it's not metaphorical. It's logical if Jesus wasn't coming to be doing that towards sin, because it's that valuable. But Jesus' message is so much more powerful than just that you failed it's so much power, more powerful than just get your stuff together. Jesus' message as we read this passage is verse, starts in verse 17. We're coming in at the middle. Right off the bat, as he begins this message, he's telling people why he's talking this way. Why bother to tell people how far from godly love they are if that's just the end result of your teaching? What's the point of all of that? Well, the point is salvation. Jesus says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What God has required from you, Jesus has come to fulfill in your place. And his message is much more than you fail or get, get it together. His message is that I'm going to come and do it for you, so submit your heart to me. Give me your life. I am your God. I am your Savior. Under your management, it's only a matter of time before you've got to pay. And so I'm bringing you another option because I love you more than the rules. If God's rules were, were, are most important to him, and they are important to him. He's not come to abolish them. What's good is good. What's loving is loving. Love is good. It can't be bad. A loving God can't ignore unloving actions. A loving God can do nothing other than completely encourage people to be loving like we should love. A loving God can do nothing more than encourage people to exhibit and display godly love. The rules are beautiful. They're wonderful. They're godly. And as good as they are, when we break them, God doesn't throw it away. Instead, as much as he loves his rules, he loves you more. And he comes to be loving in your place. As we read through the Bible, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, verse 27, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who's looked at someone who's not their spouse, he reveals that. We haven't shown godly love to anybody. We haven't shown it to a brother. We haven't shown it to our spouse. But God is going to show it to you. And how seriously did Jesus take his teaching? As we read through this, was he, is this metaphorical? And conservative Christians, and if you're, if you're here today, our congregation is, I've been here for four to five months. I'm a conservative Christian. I've gotten to know you. Almost all of you are conservative Christians. And we're blind to our own sin too. Conservative Christians, we look at the Bible and say, yeah, that teaching on sexual behavior that Jesus had in there, that was literal. He wants us to follow that. But then we look at his teaching on this, we say, no, 
Not my dignity. Not my stuff. You know, we think to fool around as human and to find out is divine. We're just waiting for somebody to fool around on us so that we can show them. This is the land of the guns. He can't have been literal here. And we're blind to our own sin. When God said to follow the family structure, those people don't want to follow the family structure. Man, they're so sinful. But when God wants me to sacrifice and take some, because I love them more than myself, well, he surely couldn't have meant that. How serious did Jesus take his teachings? Verse 39 says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. Matthew 26, 67, 68 says, they spit in his face and struck him. Jesus got the biggest guns that exist. He could shoot lasers out of his eyes. He could call down angels from heaven and squash these people. They surely deserve it. He says, saying, prophesy to you, Christ. Who is it that struck you as he humiliated him? How did he respond? Jesus just didn't talk the talk. He walked the walk. He wasn't joking. Why did Jesus do this? Because he loves them more. He loves them more than himself. Jesus loves you more than the rules. And the rules that you break, Jesus is willing to love you more. And here they're breaking Jesus' rules to his face. They're breaking him against them right to his face. Now, every rule we break, ultimately, is a slap to the face of the Lord. As we say, I know better than you, Jesus. But here the people are literally looking at God face to face and and mocking him and slapping him. And when Jesus' message is that he loves us more than the rules, he lived it. And that's what godly love looks like. What amazing love that the Lord has for me. How amazing that God's love is so far beyond me. See, I love myself so much that if someone did this to me, this would not be what I want. Matthew 27, 35 says, when they crucified and they divided his garments among them by casting lots, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Jesus didn't fight back for his stuff. John 19, 16 through 18 says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. And when they came to him and said, carry this for a mile, Jesus just wasn't kidding. He wasn't speaking metaphorically. This is the kind of love that we are to have for other people. First Peter 2.23 says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. But when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 
when we take matters in our own hands, when we seek justice even for ourselves, when we seek justice, we're showing that we have limited faith in the ultimate justice of God. Proverbs 20 I think it's Proverbs 20, 22. Let's take a look if I can remember it off the top of my head. Verse 20, Proverbs 20, 22. Do not say, I will repay, repay evil. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. What kind of good could God bring out of a situation where we don't demand justice for ourselves. What kind of good could God bring out of that? I want justice now. I want my stuff back because that's what is important to me. What kind of good could God bring out of that kind of love? Well, it's Jesus. I mean, look at what he asked the disciples to do. The people who loved the Lord, the people who he taught, they had a similar situation as Jesus. And what did they do? Well, 11 of the 12 disciples died for their faith because they were Christian. They didn't retaliate. They didn't repay evil with evil. They didn't even get justice for the evil that was done to them. 11 of the 12 disciples died for their faith. If you're bored sometime this afternoon, go Wikipedia. James was shoved off the temple. The other James was beheaded. Uh, Paul, who was not one of the disciples, he was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. John was the only one who lived, and they boiled him in hot oil, and they just couldn't kill him. And he had to spend the rest of his life with, I don't know what kind of burns you'd have. And what kind of good could come out of that? Why do you think we're here today? All over the world. Right now, people are gathering to worship the Lord. Why? Because the disciples didn't care that much about themselves. What kind of good could God bring out of it in your life, in your marriage, in your place of employment, in our church? Jenny Allen at the beginning, beginning said, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, it's going to be rough. What kind of good could God bring out of this church if we seek to not retaliate? If we loved people more than we did our own self so that if they did hurt us, our response would be to give them more. That'll change someone's heart. Continuing on, he says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In Leviticus 19, 18, we have this passage again. Apparently, people, the Jewish people were doing. This verse actually didn't originate with Jesus either. This is an Old Testament verse. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is what he's quoting, Leviticus 19, 18. And people apparently were limiting the word of, meaning of the word neighbor and just continuing to limit it and limit it and read their own desires into it that they were saying that it's okay to hate your enemy and love your neighbor. And Jesus reveals, you've heard it said, that's conventional wisdom, but I said you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, 
What kind of persecution was Jesus talking about? He talks about how he's going to send the disciples out as lambs among wolves. At my last church, without announcing it, I played a video of what happens to a lamb when they get eaten by a wolf. And I learned I can never do that again because all the moms came up to me and said, you can't show that in church. They got ripped apart. They were ripped apart. The disciples were ripped apart. Jesus wants you, godly love. What did Jesus, what, what happened to Jesus? What did they do to him? They ripped him apart. And Jesus modeled that for us. They got ripped to shreds. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Leviticus 19, 18 is that quote, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall not take vengeance. Vengeance is of the Lord. Leave the justice to God. He's got an ultimate plan for this. Matthew 10, 16, 17, he says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts, and they will flog you in their synagogues. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And this is godly love. If we do this, sir, like sons of our Father who is in heaven, who when God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were God's enemies, but he died for us even when we were still his enemies. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This is how God treats his enemies. We can't even do this with our own spouse. We can't even do this with our own brother. How much more amazing is God's love than ours? How much do we have to repent of when we look at ourselves and how close we are to God? Some of you came in here today and you knew that you had a general impression that you were a sinner, but you couldn't name a single thing when it comes down to it that you've done wrong in your life. Boy, if you came in not realizing how sinful you were and how much you are in need of Jesus Christ, you haven't been listening. If you don't love the Lord, if you're dispassionate about your faith, it's because you think you're really great and what the Lord did to you is he gave you a small gift to cover those little sins to get you the rest of the way. If you are not passionate about your faith, it's because you don't understand the immensity of the gift of the Lord. You haven't loved anybody with godly love. You've got tons to repent of. And Jesus' message is so much more than just repent. It's that he's got the gift of forgiveness for us. It's not just repent, but he has been loving in our place. And if we want the type of godly love, when we stand before God and we want to be judged by, and we're judged by the Lord, and we want God to look at us and say, well done and faithful servant, then we have to get that gift from Jesus because we can't do it ourselves. And we should certainly be trying and repenting and growing. When we stand before the Lord, if, you're, if you are under the... The, the blindness that he wouldn't have anything specific to point out that nobody could be doing a better job in your situation than you. He's blowing that up this morning. 
And if you want to stand in front of the Lord and hear him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, then you've got to have the righteousness of Jesus that he's given you and offers you. And that comes with repentance and faith in him. Love your enemies. I can't even love the people closest to me like this. We have to repent of everything. You should listen to other preachers other than me. Uh, listen to Stephen Furtick. He's an amazing pastor, an amazing preacher. But if you can't, you can't listen to him only. You got to listen to other people. Listen to Tim Keller. He's an incredible pastor. You got to listen to some of these people. Tim Keller's amazing. And he's got such a good message. He's like, I need to repent of even my repentance. Because even my desire to repent is hindered by my inability and my sin. There's no room for any pride at all in following the Lord. Loved one's enemies, I can't do that. But this is the kind of love that God has for his people. And if we do this, then we'd be sons of our Father in heaven. And if we're able to do this, even for a second, it's only because of the miraculous gift of God in our lives. This is completely supernatural. Luke 23, 34, Jesus says, Father, get them! No, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. I don't know about you, but every time I'm wronged, I get in the car, I start thinking about it, I'm like, Lord, repay them evil for evil. I want to see them suffer like they've made me suffer. God, bring justice situation. Give me back what the enemy stole. Give me back what they've taken from me. Instead, Jesus says the opposite. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Look at his mercy towards other people. And they cast lots to divide his garments. As, they, as he is showing that godly love for others, they're out there taking his stuff. This guy's famous. I want a piece of his cloak. I bet you I could sell this for a lot of money. I could put this in my display case right next to my Pat Mahomes jersey. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that is the truth. That's not a hyperbole either. If you're going to get to heaven without the Lord, then you'd have to be perfect. Thank God for Jesus. When you understand what the Lord has done for you, you won't have a little love for God. You'll have great love for the Lord. The key to loving the Lord is knowing how much he loves you, and he demonstrates it on the cross. You can measure his love. Every thorn he took in his head is for you. Every spike he took through his hands is for you. Because apart from Jesus Christ, you are God's enemy. And yet you've convinced yourself that you're on his side. You're not. To get on his side, you have to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. And then we're on his side. And as Jesus goes through and reveals what godly love is, if you want to be worthy of a relationship with our Father who is in heaven, you have to be perfect by definition. People say, I've heard many people say, well, a loving God would, would allow imperfect people into his presence. A loving God wouldn't, but by definition, that is what love is. If you take that away, you don't have love. God is just. 
And one day it will come where justice comes. Vengeance is the Lord. As Christians, we're not to take vengeance because we've got a patient, loving God who loves everybody down here more than the rules and is giving everyone every chance that they could possibly need to repent and be saved. And so we don't take vengeance, but we follow his lead with patience, knowing that one day vengeance will come at what it means to be loved. Because a loving God can't look down and forever overlook injustice, forever overlook pain. If you want justice in your life, what you need to do is repent of the ways that you have been unjust, because your sin is what will keep you from receiving that ultimate justice when the Lord returns. And he will bring justice because that's what love is. Every time that you've been unloving to somebody else, every time that you've been unloving to, to someone, uh, everyone, someone else has been unloving to you, God can't let that go by without fixing it. That's what love is. When one of my kids hits the other one, I can't let that go. And I tell them that as I'm spanking them. <laughs> I do. I say, now, I wouldn't let anybody hit you. I love you. I I wouldn't let anybody hit you. And I love them. So I can't let anybody hit them. So I've got to bring justice. God's not, Jesus is not exaggerating. This is another Old Testament Commandment. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, am holy. If you want a relationship with me, you've got to be holy because I can't let any sin into my presence. I can't have you in my presence hurting this person and this person in my presence hurting that person because I'm perfect and I bring perfection. And if we want to be a part of that perfection, well, then we need Jesus because none of us have it. But through Christ, all of us can be given it. Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And Jesus is faithful in our place. Jesus is committed in our place as we break commitments, as we hate, as we're angry. Jesus is patient in our place, and he has this gift for us. This is why he's come to do it for us, for you. And we can repent and receive his righteousness. As we read through these passages, this, if we're a Pharisee, if we're a law follower, if we're thinking that we need to earn our salvation, if we want it and we want it, we want to be able to earn our own salvation, to be able to do it so we can say to God and say, look, I've got something over you. I have followed the rules and so you owe me. I'm back in control. I'm righteous. Give me what I'm owed. And that is often the type of church person. We're here because we care. We're here because we care about the rules. We're here beca and because we care, we try to follow them. And deep down, we try to follow them so we can hold something over God. Most often, it's the people who have the different personality type. We're type A when it comes to the Lord. Most often, type, the type B people, they rely more on God's grace and don't care about the rules. We tend to care about the rules and not think about God's grace. As much as we care about the rules, we have nothing over God. We're completely undeserving. And it's a gift that we receive. 
and we get to church, we come to church so often because we look good, we feel good, we've done a good job, we want other people to look and notice. As we come, he reminds us that none of that's gotten us any closer. He sees into his heart, our hearts. Like the ho- hotel owner whose thing is going under, we resist. No, you can't really have meant that one. But he reveals to us that we're just in need of grace as anyone else. We have no reason to look down on anyone else. Next time, before you give a lesson to anyone else, sit there and think and repent of your own sin. And think of the gift that God has for you that you haven't earned. The more you think you're earning it, the more you're loving yourself, the less you're loving the Lord. The more you realize he's giving it to you, the more you realize he's done it in your place, the more you humble yourself, and then the more you love him. And what amazing love God has for us. And what amazing love God has for you.